0: Welcome to the For the Church Podcast, another great gospel-centered resource for Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. My name is Jared Wilson, and today I'm in the studio here in the beautiful Spurgeon Library on the campus of Midwestern Seminary with one of our esteemed faculty members, Dr. Owen Strand. Owen is our Associate Professor of Christian Theology, and he's Director of Midwestern Center for Public Theology. He hosts a popular podcast called The City of God. And he's the author of numerous books, including The Colson Way, Risky Gospel, and The Pastor as Public Theologian, just to name a few. Owen, thanks for coming in. Thanks so much for having me, Jared. Great to be here. No, yeah. uh, I think you're the only writer more prolific than me. <laughs> Perhaps <laughs> did you publish what 24 books last year, something like that?
1: <laughs> I I actually want to contest that. I think uh, I think you might be more productive than me. <laughs> but but hey, I'm glad to be in the arms race with you here. That's right. You know, time time is short.
0: And we got to get the message out, right? So. We we both seem to have that desire to get the message out. It's true. That's right. Well, today we're talking about actually another guy's book, uh, The Benedict Option, uh, an idea, a strategy now articulated in a book by its leading proponent, Rod Dreher. Uh, his book is called The Benedict Option, A Strategy for Christians in a Post-Christian Nation. Um, last year I was speaking, Owen, with a, um, at a conference, and this guy came up to me. This was early last year, and he wanted to talk about the Benedict option. He mm-hmm. wanted to know if I'd heard of it. Um, for him, it was like, you know, this is the best deal going. And at that point, I had read bits and pieces online um, about it, um, but just wasn't really clued in. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'd read a few blog posts, a few articles, that sort of thing. So I couldn't really have an intelligent conversation about it. Uh, but I have since read the book. Um, came out early this year or, or late last year. Um, I read it a, a couple of months ago. Um, I wonder, just for the benefit of our listeners, some people who are listening have probably never even heard of the Benedict Option, and so there's a lot of confusion about it. Um, could you tell us what exactly is the Benedict Option? Yeah, it's
1: a great question. Um, a lot of us were waiting with
0: great expectancy to see what
1: exactly Dreyer would say it was in his book because we've been following his blogs at the American Conservative for some time. And a lot of us have have very much been provoked by the idea, I would say engaged and and stimulated to think about exactly what the church is supposed to be doing in a fallen world. The Benedict option, as best I can tell, um, is a call to Christians, and Dreher has a pretty ecumenical understanding of that word, Christian. Um, That's his usage he understands you know eastern orthodox roman catholics and um protestants evangelicals included there to be in a kind of uh a kind of collaborative project to strengthen christianity in general so he calls christians to labor in their own fields essentially you know to to build schools that will train kids in a, in a Christian understanding of the world and to engage in intentional community uh, such that we develop real bonds, thick bonds with one another in a world that has fractured. That's the first part, as I understand the Benedict option of his call to the church. So again, to mend the fences, to go deep in our communities. And then the second part is um, not to not to cease public engagement in the political realm and this sort of thing, but definitely to take a step back from what he calls partisan politics because in Dreyer's view, we have gotten too focused on winning these massive cultural battles. And Dreyer's, uh, one of his main points is that um, the church actually has lost on a lot of these fronts. We have been pretty decisively defeated in the public square. And so we should give less of our attention to this kind of lost cause in the public square and and again return to what I was talking about a minute ago which is to say tending our own fences, mending our own communities. That's my best shot uh, at the Benedict Option. It seems to me, uh, I reviewed it at at the Center for Public Theology it seems to me to ebb and flow a bit as the book goes on, but uh, it's a stimulating call nonetheless.
0: Yeah, I I think something you touched on there um, is, is one of the Entry points to some of the confusion because at some points he seems to be talking about a withdrawal, mm-hmm. um, and then at other points he he has to sort of shore up um, against the critics who say you know we can't just pull out of the world. Jesus said we need, we need to be in the world, mm-hmm. um, you know, but not of the world. That sort of thing. And so he he quickly comes back around and say no 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 I'm, I'm not saying that at all. And yet the impression that one continues to get and one of the opening illustrations in the book um, that he uses is uh, is Noah and the flood Noah's ark. Like we got to get inside. The Ark, which, if that's not, I mean, you're sealing up the door. You're waiting for, I guess, sort of the cultural, uh, you know, flood to rise, and you're kind of waited out. Um, that does give the impression of, you know, the sort of, you know, total withdrawal. It does, as does, and I, I should touch
1: on this, of course, in summarizing the book. It, it, it the, the central motif is that of Benedictine community following the, the rule of Saint Benedict of Nursia, this famous. Um, This famous Christian monk uh, who created an intentional community and then ordered that community not to be a a kind of pie in the sky community, but very much to create essentially um, a community set apart from the world in order for Christians to have their mind renewed and to focus on God And to be personally changed in an ongoing kind of low key transformative way. So that's that's what the Benedict option is named for. We need to mention that. But I would fully agree with you, Jared. I found myself alternately thinking that he he was giving this elegant vision in many cases of intentional Christian community and liking that. And we may be going here in this conversation and myself thinking this is actually some of what the new Testament wants us to be doing in the local church context, but then also finding myself thinking, I don't really want to opt out from culture. I don't want to think that political struggles are the be all end all. And I think Dreyer has a point there in critiquing the movement, but yeah, I don't, I don't want to draw up the walls and, and, uh, and withdraw. I think we actually need to keep in different ways engaging our our world.
0: Yeah, I'm looking at the back uh, cover of the book and the very first endorsement is from um, Russell Moore, uh, who's president, of course, of the ERLC Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission uh, of the Southern Baptist Convention. And his endorsement is really interesting because essentially uh, there's sort of a, a caveat to it or, or a qualification to it. Um, he says, I'm more missionary than monastery. Mm. But I think every Christian should read this book, and he goes on to say some more things, which I think is is helpful, essentially to say um, it's important to to wrestle with the issues brought up. And I think why this is sort of resonating, the concept or just sort of the, the broader outline of the Benedict option, if not necessarily the finer points that he brings up throughout the book, I think why it resonates is because of some of this um, – fatigue that, especially the younger generation, and when I say younger, I'm even talking about 40s, 30s, so like Gen X on down, who every political cycle, you know, every election cycle, just, you know, get a little more weary, not just with politics, but with the evangelical churches sort of, if I can use the word, idolatry of it, or just, you know, the sense of being enamored with it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, The idea of withdrawal, at least from that, you know, disengagement makes a lot of sense. But one thing that I discovered as I read the book, um, because I went in um, in some, I want to say I I went in open-minded because there are certain aspects of what I understood about the Benedict Option going in that appealed to me, Mm -hmm. not just on the political level, but these things about strengthening Christian institutions and that sort of thing. Uh, Some of the, uh, you know, how he talks about church worship being shaping and formative and that sort of thing. That's kind of in you know uh, you know heavy on my heart as well. Part of my ministry is sort of you know talking about the way church shapes people and and worship culture and that sort of thing. Um, but I also went in with some of these you know criticisms that I've been hearing uh, in mind as well. And what I discovered is there are some areas where um, I thought the criticisms are well placed, and some areas where I didn't think they were because he actually addresses things that people. Um, suggests he doesn't. And I could tell when a critic hadn't read the book yeah. because there are certain things they would say he doesn't talk about or this, you know, he's arguing about this. And and very clearly throughout the book, there are places where, um, so, so to me, that's one of the strengths yeah. is that he has thought through a lot of these things. Um, so just for instance, there was a, a, a prominent you know blog piece that got shared quite a bit critiquing the Benedict Option by someone who I don't believe has read the book. Saying that, um, you know, we followed the Benedict option, my family did, and it, it, it ruined our kids, and it was very legalistic and that sort of thing. And in that chapter on sort of home and family, where he's talking about those things, he's very clear. I mean, he doesn't belabor the point, but there's at least a paragraph, maybe two, where he says, you can't love this more than Jesus. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, you can't make your family an idol. You can't. So he's very clearly trying to yeah. shore up some of those. The, um, you know, I guess, perceived weaknesses. What would be some of the, you know, the strengths? I mean, just sort of the highlights. If you're looking at, um, you know, so we talk about, you know, uh, a disengagement politically, sort of, he really talks about sort of making our concentration not a total withdrawal, but more on the local grassroots level. Yes. Um, so what would be some of the other sort of highlights of like, what does the strategy look like? You're looking at the bullet points. Mm-hmm. What are some things specifically he's telling churches, families, et cetera, to do? Yeah. I think you've summed it up well in terms of the
1: engagement of the book. I would say that Dreyer is tapping into a widespread hunger among both the millennial generation and even younger, perhaps, and then Gen X, as you said, for transcendence, for um, meaningful church involvement, um, for a stronger family experience. I mean, we're the generation that grew up really the first generation to grow up with no fault divorce, for example. And so we've been sold that as a kind of, you know, nuclear option for when things get really bad. And Hollywood presents uh, divorce as solving our problems, when in reality, the American family is in disarray. Um, We've been profoundly jaundiced by a public square where we have seen one politician after another flame out. Um, We recognize that our world is Orwellian. It uses buzzwords, tolerance and inclusion and diversity, but uses them as a hammer in truth. So I think a lot of people are craving transcendence and they grew up in a kind of some of them evangelical or Protestant community that gave them a sort of if you like Pearl Jam, try Christian artist X (laughs) culture. (laughs) And, you know, I'm not saying there's nothing there. But they want the real thing. Mm-hmm. We hunger, we crave authenticity and realness. And those things can themselves become buzzwords and become kind of cheesy. But I think there's a real hunger for that. I think Dreyer's vision uh, that he lays out in the Benedict Option uh, for um, church communities to be ordered around God, transcendence, an encounter with the divine, which is something your ministry uh, really stands for and and beautifully so. I think um, the call to invest in our marriages and to love our children and to not give them over to the world to educate, but to actually train our kids. And, and I don't think Christian parents have to do Christian classical school or homeschool or something. I think they can do public school. I'm just saying, whatever option you take, you see yourself as the primary pedagogue in your child's life. I think those are some of the strengths of the book. I think also, as as you referenced a few minutes ago, not making politics the sum total of our existence in the world. The church is not fundamentally a pack. It's not fundamentally a get-out-the-vote operation for a certain party. Stepping back from there is helpful, even as I myself would say, that doesn't cease the need to be salt and light, Matthew 5, and the world to love our neighbor, Matthew 22, those are some of the things we can talk about. There's, there's more there, but I mean, there's some needed stuff here in
0: this book. Yeah, to me, one of the the biggest strengths is is sort of the emphasis on um, the intentionality to actually your processing to have families actually think through um, the way culture is shaping the way um, you know the culture is uh, impact and instead of the culture like it's some kind of monolithic thing, but actually be intentional yeah. about how the rhythms of your life the decisions that you make that you're not just sort of getting by mm-hmm. or adjusting your Christian faith to the dictates of the culture mm-hmm. but but actually being intentional about how the rhythms of your life the spheres of community that you're in um, you know all these decisions that you make church school you know family life all these sorts of things um, how they actually shape us and how they strengthen or weaken, um, you know the Christian community, and so I think the arc illustration that he's given is is sort of like, look, we've we've lost that battle, um, and some people can disagree with that or not. Um, I'm not sure if I uh, agree with it or not. I mean, in some on some fronts, I think we've clearly l- lost in terms mm-hmm. of the culture war. Um, obviously, to be on the side of, of of the gospel is to be victors, no matter what. That's right. um, but just in terms of like the battles that we have, you know, tended to have fought. Mm-hmm. um you know we've lost those in, in terms of legislation and just sort of mm-hmm. you know cult um you know the prevailing winds of the culture that sort of thing and so he's essentially trying to say like look we we have to quit fighting a war that's already over like mm-hmm. that's it's done and so there's something sort of bracing about that something that's i think helpful um for families but you mentioned kind of, you know, the Christian version of, uh, you know, the old uh, um, CCM charts or what have you. Um, I wonder, like, even within the tribe, so like even within evangelicalism or or, or just even broader Christianity within Christendom um, in the West, the Benedict option sort of sounds to me like it's, um, so what Platt's radical Mm -hmm. is for sort of the, um, you know, the average evangelical suburbanite sort of um, or, or what even like Shane Claiborne stuff would be like for the progressives or what have you, yes. uh, the Benedict Option is sort of like that for the intellectual mm-hmm. um, new conservative or, or um, mm-hmm. you know, the evangelical, I, in fact, I can use the word elite maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, I know gospel censored folks, that tribe, resonate with Platt as well, but this seems like well-suited for our times because it's a little more um, – uh, intellectual, I guess is the word I would use. He, he's got, yes. you know, a lot. It, it's not aimed at just sort of the, you know, the, the popular reader, which to me makes me wonder about the the breadth. If you have lots of people who, first of all, reading the book and they go, I'm ah, still not sure exactly right what, <laughs> what this is, but also the appeal. Do you see something like this? Um, taking off, and what would it take for it, this actually to take root yes. in in the wider evangelical culture? You know, it's it's a great question, and I would
1: say that um, I have kind of seen the Benedict option. I think in some of the churches I've been involved in, um, not meaning you know a hard vision uh, sketched out by Rod Dreher for you know these Baptist church leaders or something, but I have seen, for example, at Capitol Hill Baptist in Washington D.C. under the leadership of Mark Dever and others. I've seen a church that sought to be really countercultural and take people deep and believe in theological and intellectual formation as the fountainhead of spirituality and call very busy DC professionals who probably in many cases are among the so-called cultural elites of the day, order their life around the church and not around you know their private school or sports team, or whatever it may be that pulls at their time. I guess I'd I'd say then that Dreyer's book seems to me to be kind of calling for a renewal movement in the way that Deborah and others in a kind of gospel-centered context have been calling for this for now, I don't know, 10, 15 years. So I, I guess you could say if I wanted to be a little cheeky, the Benedict option is kind of nine marks for the Eastern Orthodox.
0: Yeah. That's really, it's fascinating that you bring that up because when I finished the book Mm -hmm. and I was thinking we need, you know, almost like if you liked the Benedict option, (laughs) but but something written for the radical crowd, right? The same people that would read radical walk into a target and, and, Mm -hmm. you know, and pick it up. The soccer mom, the, you know, uh, um, just the average guy who Um, They never heard of Rod Dreher. Mm -hmm. Just even the title, the Benedict option. You talk about a monk. It just sounds weird. Um, But the ideas are very um, applicable. They're very interested, actually. What do I do? How do I leave my family? We need someone to kind of write, um, you know, that book. And I thought, you know, the book that I wish every every pastor would read, because they're really the cultural gatekeepers for evangelicals, I think, or, you know, primary influence. Mm -hmm. I wish every pastor would read Nine Marks of a Healthy Church. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's setting up... um, something I want to talk about in a bit when we get to sort of more, I know we've talked about some weaknesses already. Um, I'll talk about some things that I appreciate about, you know, appreciated about the book. Just real quick bullet points. Um, the emphasis on the worship culture of a church. Um, he emphasizes liturgy, of course, um, and in a sense, almost like uh, uh, not necessarily high church liturgy, but more formal liturgy uh, in a church because he sees that, that repetition Um Really, he doesn't use the phrase centrality of of the gospel, but this the centred on Christ, exposition of the scriptures, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. As um, you know, a recovery of that is totally necessary for um, you know for the life of the church. Uh, I think if we trace some of what's going on in the evangelical culture uh, back to its root, it's not because of the outside influence of the culture. At least, um, uh, you know, not at uh, at it's Genesis, but on the pastoral influence, how they've been discipled, in other words. Yes. Um, so the church communities, the sort of content, if we can call it that, content coming out of the church communities, um, sh- shapes. And so Dreher, I think, has some good things to say about that, certainly about, about family. Um, but I have a sort of a caveat to that as well. But just the intentionality, I think, is probably um, the key word there. Hey, let's take a coffee break here and hear from our host, Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. Midwestern College is preparing and equipping the leaders of today and tomorrow. Our students continue to be agents of change both in the United States and around the world. The unique community environment at Midwestern College fosters spiritual, personal, and academic growth as students deepen their understanding of the Word of God and the world He created. With our dual degree option, students can get grounded in the truth while getting ready for the marketplace. Our Accelerate program allows students to pursue both their Bachelor of Arts and their Master of Divinity simultaneously in one intensive five-year program. Midwestern College, both residential and online degrees available. Midwestern is the sensible option for preparing and equipping the leaders of today and tomorrow. Find out more at MidwesternCollege.com. Now, back to the podcast. All right, we're back with Dr. Owen Strand, one of my colleagues here at Midwestern Seminary, and we're discussing The Benedict Option, the concept and the book by Rod Dreher. Um, oh, and let's talk about. Um, I know we've already sort of touched on some weaknesses. I think there's, you know, a lot of strengths in the book more than even the critics will give it, um, you know, credit for. Um, it, you know, it's not just well written; it's well thought through. Um, the, the, you know, the points that he's bringing up are things we have to think about, even if we come to different conclusions. To me, that's probably one of the biggest strengths of the book. Is when you read it, you've got to wrestle with these things. You can't be somewhat apathetic about these things he's touching on. Um, but I do think that there are some weaknesses there, some glaring, some somewhat minimal. Why don't you share um, with us, you know, what are some things that you read, uh, you know, as you read the book, wrestled with it, processed th- through it, where you thought, ah, I wish he'd done more of this, or I wish he'd said that, or I wish he hadn't have said that, you know, you know that kind of thing.
1: Yeah. Well, as a fellow author um, like you, what a uh, position of power to be in. To, uh... <laughs> pass. <laughs> Let's rent. tear this guy's Let's book apart. No, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm used to being on the opposite side of this and wincing. So um, I appreciate the opportunity you've given me, Jared. Thank you. Um, I guess I would say there, there are a few things we could point out um, as weaknesses that come to mind. First, the book feels a little bit like a pastiche. Um, I know that some of this material was developed on his blog and then re- reworked and added to not all of it. But um, I would say that stood out to me in the in the reading of it, especially when compared with the recent book by Anthony Esselin, the former Providence College professor who has written a similar kind of cry of the heart sort of book about the fall of Western civilization and how to address it. Esselin's book um, has some more flow to it compared to Dreyer's. So that's just a, a literary point there. That's not a major kind of theological point. In terms of the theology of the book, I would say that um Rod Dreyer seems to me still to be kind of in process theologically. <laughs> oh, yeah. A- and he's open about this to his credit by the way. Dreyer has kind of broken the cultural silence about religion in a pretty major way and if you read that New Yorker profile of him this last week it's very clear that um this this spiritual journey that Rod Dreyer's on is fascinating to his his type and here I'm not meaning orthodox Christians or our crowd gospel center or whatever. Baptist I'm talking about elite New Yorkers, for example, who maybe were raised you know in some kind of religious tradition, Catholic Jewish, Protestant, something like that, but are far from that now, have succeeded in life, have won living the American dream, but are finding it's not fully fulfilling. Rod Dreer, I think, is living a version of what they sometimes think about as they're speeding to d c on the Acela train, you know what would it be like to re engage with my community, what my religious community, what would it be like to train my kids in an intentional religious way? Dreyer is kind of showing them, I think, a version of that. So I commend him for that. At the same time, he feels to me like he's still doing some theological pastiche, honestly. He's taking some evangelical stuff here, some Catholic stuff here, yeah. some Orthodox stuff here. And I would love, honestly, genuinely, to have a conversation with him about the gospel.
0: Yeah what the gospel is. Yeah, to me, that was the most, and I want to talk about a couple other things I think are pretty important, but the most glaring uh, omission. Well, it's it's not a total omission. So I go into the book essentially looking for, because of the way that I'm wired, looking for the gospel, looking for the centrality of Christ. And to his credit, I will say there are a couple places where um, he explicitly says, hey, Jesus has to be at the center of this thing. The gospel has to be the center of this thing. That's right. Um, On the other hand, it's just a couple times he says that. And it almost gives the impression, given the breadth of the book and all of the different applications and implications that he's teasing out, to throw in a couple of, hey, but of course the gospel moments, to me, like my, you know, my uh, you know, spidey senses start tingling. So to me, like anytime you but of course the gospel, mm-hmm. um, I mean, that's a red flag. You, you mm-hmm. don't but of course the gospel. And so that's there right. are places where I don't think he's very clear um on it. He's not making an explicit connection between how these certain things are gospel implications. Um there are things, for instance, I was pulling up, you know, just a while ago searching um he tweeted a while back where he, he mentioned, he used the phrase and you could take this a, a different way, but he said, thrilled to find Benedict option allies among our Orthodox Jewish brothers and sisters. And yeah. Mm-hmm. To me, just the phrase Jewish brothers and sisters, uh, you, you know, he just made me that culturally because they're religious, we're, right. we're, you know, we're religious compatriots, that sort of thing. Um, we're brothers and sisters in the sense that we're, you know, countercultural against sort of the prevailing anti-religious or irreligious culture. Felt and travelers. That's, if I'm being charitable, that's what he means. But just to use the phrase, the Benedict option in relation to Jewish brothers and sisters tells me that the gospel really isn't the center of the Benedict option, that it really right. is sort of a religious strategy that could have multiple um, applications, and therefore, if it, it, if the gospel isn't center, and this is sort of tangential to another, um, you know, criticism that I would have, which is that the church, um, he emphasizes very much and talks about how it has to be the center of family life and that sort of thing, but it it also just sort of reads as if church is sort of one facet of your life mm-hmm. that's something um, it's a component you have your family life and you have your school life and you have your church life and right and you know he's big on christian community and 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 the church community and that sort of thing but it still just sort of feeds back into i think the suburban problem of compartmentalization where mm-hmm. your religious self is like an aspect of you mm-hmm. which i think ties back into the idea of, is christ everything right. or is he just sort of you know, kind of the life coach for me sort of thing.
1: Right. And we do, we want people to recover an, an understanding of the church's institution in their life. That's something that you and I would both want to be clear about, that um, this is a necessary part of the Christian life. I think Dreyer understands that the church is valuable, and he's seeing um, how parts of him are coming alive um, spiritually um, as he experiences uh, the worship of this Eastern Orthodox Church, but we're not we're not calling people to generalized Christian spirituality. That's right. We're calling people to a transformative, born again experience with Jesus Christ that is not actually this kind of momentary transaction that we need to see. We need to see you check that box and then you know move on to what you were doing beforehand. We want to see then Christ at the center of everything. Church is valuable because it's where Christ is. <laughs> that's right. It's not. It's great, but it's valuable because that's where you find Christ. You know, um, raising your kids as a Christian parent is great, but it's great because you're passing on Christ to them. Yeah. Um, Christian school is meaningful because it shapes and forms kids to be um, to be countercultural and these sorts of things. But it's great because Christ is there. Yeah. They learn Christ in some sense.
0: Yeah, it, it reminds me a little bit when, when I finished the book, and I thought, okay, what is the vision that he's casting? Uh, I longed more to see how the glory of Christ was, you know, permeating these things, and was the end goal of those things. And a couple of passages in a two hundred some page book, mm-hmm. uh, you know, two paragraphs that sort of, you know, make that. Oh, but also, or but of course, this um, didn't quite do it for me, and I was left with this image. I remember hearing the story of, um, you know. Uh, the great Barnhouse on his radio show, um, you know, presenting the question, what would it look like if the devil took over a city? Mm-hmm. Um, which is kind of the central question, uh, you know, of this is sort of well like, does a, you know, a completely irreligious, hostile to Christianity city, you know, look like? That's what we got. So yes. how do we, you know, how do we combat that? Well, Barnhouse said, what would it look like if the devil took over a city? And he said, you might picture, um, you know, adult bookstores everywhere and, and you know, graffiti on all the walls and and, you know, all the bars are, you know are full of people who are falling out drunk, and you know it's just just awful. but he said, no, if Satan took over a city, mm. all the bars and pool halls will be closed, um the streets will be clean and pristine, you know, children would say yes, sir, no, ma'am. Yeah. you know they'd say hi to you while they walked you know down the sidewalk, mm. and he said, all the churches would be full on Sunday where Christ isn't preached mm. and to me it's, it's such a um I mean it's a provocative yeah. illustration as well, because there's yes. I think um a lot of uh, Christians. Uh, evangelical or not, a lot of Christians who would settle for that vision, where everyone's just acting right. If everybody would just act right, be well behaved. If we would remember our manners, and, mm. and and people would be nice to each other, and everything was tidy, and you know families were intact, and all these all these things which aren't bad right. at all, right. um, they would settle for that. And to me, it was like almost this Im- impression that I'm getting. Is for Dreer just everybody not looking like the wild, licentious, you know, um, irreligious culture. If everybody would just act right, it would be it would be better. Let's um, move on to I think another glaring weakness, and um, this is a criticism that I think is very valid. There's you know, some criticisms that I heard that I thought, first of all, aren't accurate because he covers that sort of thing in in, in the book. Um, there are others I just thought were reactionary, just not understanding sort of the concept of of the strategy. But then others I thought um, show a, a big blind spot for Dreher and, by extension, um, people who w- would be inclined to read the book. Mm-hmm. Um, so, for instance, um, is it replicable? You know, can this be actually, um, you know, applied um, in in every Christian church or by right. every Christian family? And not sort of disconnected from that point is it is it replicable? Um, what about um, our brothers and sisters of color? So non-white, um, you know, Christians, or um, not necessarily non-white, but uh, underprivileged. So white, black, Asian, Hispanic, um, but don't have the sort of um, resources of suburbia or just um, a two-parent household. Right. Some of the things that he talks about in the book would, you know, it's like you should take your kids out of public school and mm-hmm. you should homeschool or start, you know, entrepreneurially start a, a Christian classical school. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking, you know, this is really aimed um, at, you know, a lot of uh, white middle to upper middle class, maybe even, about, you, know, you know, upper class, um, two-parent families. And there's a lot of Christians that that don't fit that yeah. um, aspect. So and and even right. from some of our African American friends who would say things like, not only does he not quote or pull from the African American Christian experience uh, in America, but he should have, because if anyone knows what it's like to um, live in a, a minority Christian culture mm-hmm. in a hostile, yeah. um, in the hostile American culture or in a within a, a wider culture that's hostile to your existence, it would be the black churches. So, I mean, you, you know, can you speak to that? Is that, yes. um, is it replicable? Why, why not? And, you know, do they have a point? There's a lot there to, to, <laughs> I know, I'm sorry. Through. No, it's good. <laughs> it's good. These are the questions that this book uh,
1: poses to us, honestly. Uh, and, and again, Very much commend Rod Dreher in a way similar um, to Ross Douthit a few years ago um, with some of his writing. Um, Joseph Bottom, who wrote his book An Anxious Age um, uh, several years back. Dreher is entering into this conversation of um, what are we to be as religious people in a culture, at least at the elite levels, that seems less and less friendly to religion. So commend him. I commend him for posing these questions. And starting this conversation um, i would say that insofar as the benedict option is touching on some elements of what it means to be the true church constituted by the gospel of jesus christ uh, the gospel that that uh, teaches that we are saved by the blood of christ and resurrected by the actual resurrection of christ i would say that um that yes this is replicable in other words wherever there's a true christian community there can be uh, all sorts of intentional decisions we make. We can order our life around Christ. We can plug in very meaningfully into the local church. So I'm not so much here owning all aspects of the Benedict option. I'm saying I think the Benedict option points to some of what the New Testament gives us. Yeah. So in, the principles, in other words. The principles, right? Right. Okay. exactly, some of which have been eclipsed by American culture for different reasons. In terms of, in terms of the racial dimension— Dreyer was critiqued as kind of offering, you know, a tonic for the aggrieved upper-class white evangelical in this book by some online. I I think I can understand where those critiques um, germinate, but I would say insofar as Dreyer is in numerous points in the book calling attention to real persecution that has happened in recent years to religious folks, I think that this actually is a kind of cross-racial experience. Here's what I mean. You think about the former Atlanta fire chief, Kelvin Cochran, who was sidelined a few years back because of his views on homosexuality, a book he wrote uh, for men um, that that got him in hot water, that got him fired. You think about Sage Steele on ESPN uh, a few weeks ago, who herself was disciplined by ESPN because she holds to a Christian sexual ethic and and also um, a more conservative understanding of politics, I think she said some things that were vaguely pro-Trump, and found herself, you know, um, sidelined effectively mm-hmm. in her job as well. She's she's African American, as is Kelvin Cochran. What I'm trying to say is, Christians of all races and all backgrounds are finding themselves in hot water today, in in various spheres. And so I think Dreyer is right, and I don't think that the Benedict option in terms of the principles it offers in terms of the cultural crisis it diagnoses and i think there is a real crisis in the west uh i i think um i think it's unfair to say that this is you know sort of um uh make your life better manual for for the upper class white evangelical i do think that you are absolutely right that our african american brothers and sisters have been living this yeah and i do think that evangelical gospel preaching black churches Know a great deal yeah. about what it is like to experience the kind of crisis and, to some degree, persecution that a lot of us are beginning to experience today. Yeah,
0: I mean, to me, I think that's um, so. There's two points there I think are really important. Um, the first is is the principles, right, to be um, you know oriented around this kind of life are um, are replicable applicable across the board, mm-hmm. any class, any you know ethnicity, um, social status, that sort of thing. Um, but some of the applications he makes, um, I totally understand and sympathize with the reaction. So if you're reading, I mean, e- even myself, like, you know, just, you know, several years ago, we could not afford to put our, our children in the local Christian school. There was one option where we lived. We were in rural Vermont. Mm-hmm. There was one local Christian school option. Um, even if we had wanted to do that, we could not have afforded to do that, mm-hmm. so if someone were to you know, come to me and say, "If you really want to be a good Christian family and and resist the cultural onslaught, you'll take your kids out of public school and put them into this Christian school," I was like, "Well, are you going to help me? You can help me do that." Yes. So, I, you know, I'm trying to put myself in the shoes of the single mom, mm-hmm. um, black, white, Asian, you know, whatever. Um, but the single mom who's reading this thinking, "Well, this would be great if you know, if we had you know, um, you know, two parents here. I, you know, I'd love to homeschool my kids, mm-hmm. but but I can't." I'm, I'm the one who's, you know, who's a breadwinner or families where there are two parents at home, but you know, they're, you know, living on a double income. Um, and, and to some extent that's how they, you know, survive. It's not, they have all these luxuries and things going on and that's why they've got two parents working, but they got two parents working just to eke out the existence that they've got. So I understand some of the applications when I work there. I also think, um, you know, you mentioned the, you know, the phrase, you know, hot water today, um, and to me, the important thing is to be listening. So I I do think it's a valid criticism that he's actually not, he hasn't pulled from the African-American experience. Um, they've been in this hot water for a while, yeah. not necessarily in the religious, um, you know, aspect, but just in terms of being a minority culture where you, the, the wider culture is, is, is hostile or, or, you know, you, you understand you're not privileged. You're living under, you know, under the, you know, prevailing winds of a privileged culture. And there's all sorts of implications for that, some hostility, some just oppression, marginalization. And to not listen to them, especially to the Christian leaders Mm -hmm. um, who, you know, when they say things like, um, you know, now the sky is falling because it's affecting you. Right. (laughs) It's been affecting us for years. Um, I think we need to listen to that. You Um, you know, we need to not just, you know, dismiss that um, offhand. Um, does that mean that what Roger is saying is wrong or, or there aren't principles that we can all apply? No, absolutely not. Um, but if we're actually going to be in this together, we, we have to open up our ears a little bit and actually listen to each other and actually be in it uh, together. And, and that goes um, you know, especially for those of us of privilege. Uh, we're going to close on that note. Um, certainly there's a lot to explore here. Um, I don't know if you who are listening have been intrigued by this. I do recommend that you read the book um, if only to sort of have questions that perhaps you haven't pondered uh, um, brought to mind, um, or at least go online and read some more from Dreher on the Benedict Option. And now, of course, in response, there's uh, some, uh, some other alternatives you know, germinating out there. I see some, uh, uh, you know, some folks from another seminary talking about the Patrick Option and our own Christian George, Christian George here, curator of the Spurgeon Library and professor of historical theology. Um, has been mentioning the um, uh, the Francis option, mm-hmm. at least in personal conversations. Uh, he's a big fr- um, fan of uh, St. Francis, so um, I'm a big fan of the Jesus option. I, <laughs> I, I think maybe we can uh, move on to these other applications once the evangelical Christians, at least, uh, figure out the Jesus mandate. <laughs> not yeah, <just> the option. <laughs> I, I I don't have an option.
1: Uh, but just in conclusion, I, I do. I I would just quickly say, when I look at the life of Chuck Colson, you mentioned Hmm. my book on Colson, The Colson Way. When I look at Colson, I see a figure who really was starting to grapple with the dying of the light in the West. Um, Because for all of us, for all Christians, whatever background, whatever race, we can, I think, see that major changes are taking place in American culture. And I do see in Colson something that I I want to just uh, light a flare for quickly. And that's um, that Colson, this former Marine, um, that was the way he freak, most frequently referred to himself he 's a graduate of the ivy Leagues he was you know nixon 's guy he he was high and mighty he was rich, but the way he most often liked to refer to himself besides being a christian was being an ex marine a tough marine he would
0: frequently <laughs> say
1: and that that got into his mindset because he would he would regularly tell his employees and, and folks he worked alongside um do your duty and stay at your posts and so in engaging dreyer 's book I was reminded of Colson's example. Um, And I'm thinking here in particular of a Wilberforce-like approach to the public square. So yes, we have suffered some massive losses in the public square. Yes, we should absolutely fight idolatry along political lines, cultural lines. And I think that you're right to say that that is a temptation, a real temptation for evangelicals. We also recognize that things were pretty bitter and partisan for Wilberforce. But he was absolutely right to stay at his post and do his duty and seek the ending of the slave trade and slavery in general in the British Empire. And praise God, he did not tire of that work. So let's be honest about where we stand. Let's not see um, electing candidates or something like that as the primary mission of the church in this world. We have a we have a greater mission than that, a transcendent mission to worship Christ and make Him known in all the world. Let's also recognize that there are really neighbors out there. There are the least of these. And um and we need to be a voice for them as evangelicals. So um I'm not here to promote the Colson option, Jared, but I would just <laughs> say I would just say there are, there are some things that we can learn from past saints who have engaged in these tough, tough questions.
0: Yeah, I think you're right. We've been speaking with Owen Strand, Assistant Professor of Christian Theology at Midwestern Seminary. Please check out his writing online at the Center for Public Theology. That's cpt.mbts.edu, cpt.mbts.edu, Center for Public Theology. If you Google that, I'm sure you'll pull up the page. And make sure to download and listen to his great podcast on theology and culture, The City of God. It comes out weekly. Thank you so much for listening. And until next time, may Jesus be big in your church. You've been listening to the For the Church podcast, hosted by Jared Wilson, managing editor of For the Church, found online at ftc.co. This resource is brought to you by Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Kansas City, Missouri, where we train leaders for the church.